hashtag Global Watch Violence and Collective Agency of Young People in the Global South, a research outcome. Our guest this evening is Dr. Greg Houston, Chief Research Specialist in Developmental, Capable and Ethical State Research Division at the HSRC, that's the Human Sciences Research Council. Physical, symbolic and structural types of violence are embedded in the lives of young people in the Global South. However, having struggled against violence related to colonialism, slavery, and capitalistic expropriation, these young people have developed the capacity to oppose violence through collective agency. This is explored fourth in a series of five HSRC Global South Youth Studies. Conventions convened to broaden and deepen Southern scholarship about, with, and for young people and to grow a community of practice. The series began in 2021, publishing of the Oxford Handbook of Global South Youth Studies. On the line this evening is Dr. Greg Houston to tell us more about these studies and some of the outcomes of their research and perhaps especially the perceptions that are being challenged through such studies. Greg, good evening. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to SAFM. Good evening, and thank you so much for having me on. Let's talk first about the impact of violence, the trauma it begets on a people, and how that trauma has a way of manifesting itself, how the history of violence has a way of manifesting itself, in large part, for a long time, as the kinds of antisocial behaviors that through generations of violence and trauma and simply being degraded to less than human has a way of replicating itself, even when people might not necessarily be as conscious or deliberate about doing that? Yes, that's a very interesting point to make. I think, uh, you know, violence, particularly in these communities that we grow up in, these racially defined communities, in which, uh, you know, people are packed together, coming from diverse backgrounds and forced to live in um, under underserviced communities, you know, violence becomes a norm. Young people grow up in this violent environment in which, you know, safety is really not something that we can take for granted. You know, I grew up in this place which we call Winship, and I can recall as a youngster, you know, the, the type of uh, environment that we grew up in with the gangsters and so on. And, you know, it's now 40, 40 50 years later, it is still the same. So, you know, it's it's almost like a generational growth expansion. It's, it, it, it's, it's adopted by the youth generation after generation because it becomes a norm in society. And, you know, it's we need to find ways of getting out of this and taking our young people away from the type of behavior that becomes normal and acceptable behavior among young people. And that is the challenge that we face. How do we find ways of getting out of this? How much of the South African experience now, how much of, I want to call it what I believe it is, the state of lawlessness, the state of violence and the lack of accountability following the occasioning of violence on innocent and vulnerable people who, through that violence, their freedoms are taken away. And if you're talking about women and children, it becomes even more ghastly. Not so long ago, the president had a summit on GBV, and it has become the hallmark of his tenure. The fact that there has to even be a conversation of this kind, a GBV summit. South Africa and the legacy of violence here, 
how, first of all, do we account for it? And secondly, how do we, in accounting for it, change the narrative altogether? Um, well, there are so many issues that you're bringing up here. I mean, if we look at the, the, the areas that we grow up in, the lack of uh, fathers, you know, the absent fathers in many of our communities, is part of the challenge. Now, you know, in the home, you're learning to be lawless. You know, starting there, because you, you, there isn't this type of um, father figure that's in the families. Many of our families are single parents families. And then you go, you go out into the broader community, and the, the actual disgust that people have with the performance of the police, it's really disturbing to see, you know, how people have such little faith in the performance of our police. And, you know, these are things, and it's, it's up to the community to come together and to say, look, how do we deal with, firstly, the situation in our families? How do we accommodate the challenges that people are facing as single parents in many homes, as young children growing up without, without you know, the normal parental guidance that, they, that one would get? And then going out into our communities, how do we collectively deal with issues in our communities that create circumstances in which there is violence, in which violence becomes a norm. So it's, it's, it's this thing of depending on the states all the time that we need to also move away from. We need to work in collaboration with the state, not against the state, not against the police, and not against each other, but how do we come together as communities and with the, you know, the, the, the states and, and its various forces mm. to combat and to deal with the issues that we are facing. I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with that. But in an environment where you have a sense of trust deficit as high as it is, and I'm talking about South Africa, of course, the fact that parts of what were inherited pre-94 have simply moved on as though we are in the pre-94 dispensation. You mentioned police. The relationship the police have with African communities, to put it frank, put it this way, I once read on a tweet... Now, this is not the source of my information, but it struck a chord with me when this gentleman, a white gentleman on Twitter said it was following a protest that became a very violent protest and the police had to disperse the crowd using tear gas and rubber bullets. It became violent. Somebody might have passed away. I just don't recall the the protest. But this gentleman says, if you put white kids at the front of the protest, this would not have happened. But the truth in that statement really hit hard and hit hard, hard. It was the Fees Must Fall thing, exactly. My producers just reminded me. It was in the time of the Fees Must Fall when this tweet came out following the violence of the Fees Must Fall protests. How then should the community move? When, when you say if they should take the onus, well, in part, they do take the onus and the responsibility, and it manifests in increasing levels of mob justice, which probably isn't the way to go about it, but it's just indicative of the of the breakdown in the relationship between the state's institutions, law enforcement, peace, and all beget from the lack of service delivery that really people are entitled to and are not getting. How do we move from that? Because that's essentially where we are. Yes. Uh, the, the trust in institutions of government has declined dramatically over the years. You know, the first few years of our democracy was the honeymoon period. And we are now in a period where you know, everybody's just in 
very, very negative state of mind. There's a lot of people who are not happy with what's going on. And we are identifying so many challenges, service delivery challenges, as you mentioned. Yes, how do we deal with this? I mean, there's so many things going on. The government is engaging in so many efforts. I mean, there are structures created like uh, community police farms and so on that do work in some places that don't work in others. There are, you know, there's exercises around social cohesion. There's a, a, in Wenchard, for instance, the area I come from, has a large number of community organizations. It is a highly religious community. And yet, even there, you find that these don't make an, an impact on on the type of issues that you're talking about. Because there are concerns about service delivery, there's a mm. perception of, of marginalization that come out, especially, all, and I think this is across the racial uh, uh, thing, when, when you talk about impoverished communities, and they are white poor communities, they are Indian poor communities, and so on, to use racial categories. Mm-hmm. There is this common, and this is why I think race, people do not see the unity of the, of, of, of the challenges across race, that the marginalized are the most vulnerable and most affected in so many ways. And this is across race. So how do you get marginalized people to begin to see that we need, we have collective struggles? How do we collectivize our struggles? Instead of looking at this as something, an issue affecting, let's say, Kwamashu, or affecting Wentworth, or Mlazi here in Durban, or Chatsworth, because people are facing the similar social service delivery challenges. They're facing the similar social ills, unemployment, poverty. So, you know, it's, it's, there needs to be efforts across the racial groups, across communities, in order to deal with these types of issues. And, you know, our political parties, unfortunately, I have my own allegiance. And, uh, I, but uh, political parties do not seem to be the answer at the moment. And uh, I'm, I'm, my focus is trying to see how we can develop within a community, a sense of community inside the area that I come from and where I currently am living. That there is a sense of pride in where we come from and, and who we are. Let, let, let's talk about the social issues that create for an environment that becomes hostile in the context in which we are talking. And let's all together forget that we're talking about South Africa. What has been or what is the global experience? Societies that emerge from violence and perhaps given the political histories and their similarities, we can move to the United States. They've got similar challenges. It's just perhaps something that is glossed over as one has lived there. Fortunately, I can perhaps speak not with authority, but with some reference. And the reference is the other side of the tracks probably was born there because quite frankly, in the United States, the other side of the tracks is obvious between perhaps the effect of the Jim Crow laws and the violence that gave rise to particularly in the 1960s and the civil rights movements and the protests that ultimately created for the America that we now know. But this America that we now know is not without its fissures. George Floyd is probably an example of the depth of the fissures that society even has. So we're talking about a global North country, but that's got some serious fundamental global South issues of the kind we're talking about now. Yes, in, in, in countries like South Africa and the United States and probably Britain and uh, Brazil, the issue of racism does uh, play a role in terms of how certain forms 
of violence uh, occur. And, and uh, I mean, you mentioned George Floyd. I mean, that is a particular type of violence that you see with the police against the, the black community. Mm. But I would say I would go broader than this and, and say that in impoverished communities around the world, you're going to face similar problems in social issues. The lack of services, the, the poverty and unemployment, the drug issues, the, 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 the rise of gangs and so on, prostitution, all these things are basically boiled down to a state of powerlessness because of poverty. And poverty is, is found all over the world. And if one looks at these communities, you'll find similar challenges and similar violences. The travelers of, of Brazil, for instance, and poor communities in the United States are endemic. Violence is endemic in such communities as it is in, in, in impoverished communities in South Africa. The poverty is our biggest problem. And, 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 and accompanying that, of course, is the gross inequality. I mean, we have a country in which you see houses going for 100 million, worth 100 million rent. Uh-huh. And, 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 you know, other people are living in, in, in informal settlements, in sex. And it's so glaringly unequal that, you know, it, 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 it frustrates. And, and, and this is exacerbated by the, by the fact that people see that they're not getting any services delivered in their areas. So it's a challenge that we face. And, you know, uh, I, you dep- this is depressing me a bit, but I, 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 am, I am actually a very positive thinking person because we've got to deal with these issues of poverty and inequality. And we do have the resources to deal with that. I don't think South Africa doesn't have the resources it needs to address her challenges. I suppose let's go into parts of the study. What then becomes of the arrangement of the resources, how they are directed, and the extent in which they are deployed, by who, when? All these WH questions, what, where, when, how, why. How do we move in a direction that attends to, first of all, the social problems, because I think the basis of all things right and all things wrong are the social questions, the level of education, access to economic opportunity, access to spaces of development, access to education and and, and health. I mean, health cannot be gainsaid in any context, in any society. How do we, in addressing this conversation about violence, do we channel it instead of deploying resources to stop the violence, but rather deploy resources to engage people positively in a developmental aspect, and through that, mitigating the opportunity for violence? I think one has to start with the issue of poverty. I think that's a starting point for me. And I think it's the way in which we deal with poverty. We need to learn from other parts of the world. China has brought millions of people out of poverty. And the Chinese approach is more holistic. In other words, you know, our, our approach to dealing with poverty and, and dealing with uh, poverty alleviation, basically providing a person with a house, providing a person with a, a bursary, and so on. You know, we need to move towards po- reduction of poverty. And how do we reduce poverty? By dealing with it more holistically. In other words, how can you give somebody an RDP house who is unemployed. How do you give someone a, a grant, um, a pension, 
and is supporting children that is not provided where, where no funds are provided for. Now, if you take the family or the individual as the units to bring out of poverty, and we focus on that individual, and I can go on about this in, in various ways because I've looked at some of the um, ways in which, in particular, poverty is dealt with among military veterans. You know, people are given training in business, how to run a business, but they have no business to run. So resources are used and not used in the optimal way. Now, we've got millions of people dependent on, on social crimes and, and various forms of poverty leaders. How do we transform this into poverty reduction using the same resources, but being more focused on individuals as an individual? that needs to be taken out of poverty, a family that needs to be taken out of poverty. Not just giving somebody an RDP house and that's it. How do they survive beyond that RDP house? How do they maintain it? So I think we need a much broader look at how our social grants are used, the existing resources, how can we use them more optimally to oh. take people out of poverty? I want to ask one final question. Now this Global South Youth Series studies are sort of becoming more and more entrenched. When I mean, we became in 2021, we are now where we are. Um, we, we, we are moving on. We'll be picking up information. We're picking up trends. We're picking up patterns. We are understanding why the Global South is the Global South. How can you summarize that for the listener to walk away from this conversation now that we've sort of dealt with some of the challenges that South Africa is experiencing, which are not unique to South Africa, and what the studies are revealing, particularly with the youth slant? Final comment. I'm, I'm, I'm quite optimistic. I'm quite optimistic. Despite our challenges, I think our youth, our youth are a gift to us. Our young people have the capacity to actually do a lot. Just give them an opportunity. Wow. I am working with four young people here, and I'm seeing the potential that is here and the capability of people. And it's amazing. Given a chance, our people can do a lot. And that's all we need to do. Fantastic stuff. I couldn't have said it better. Thank you so much, Dr. Gregory Houston, Chief Research Specialist, Developmental, Capable and Ethical State at the Human Sciences Research Council. That was a conversation on violence and collective agency of young people in the global south. A research outcome. Certainly the series continues and we look forward to unpacking some of the issues that are plaguing our society and perhaps where some of the solutions might lie. Greg mentioned earlier on that community certainly has agency, and there's certainly a case that can and has to be said about the role you and I at home as ordinary citizens create an environment that reflects our aspirations for that very environment, our environment, our communities. It's called ownership.